0: You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement, and thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. In this episode, we sit down with former Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Director Seth Klein to discuss his recent work related to the climate emergency. Our host, M jo Hall, and Seth delve into the upcoming Canadian federal election, examining each major party's policies related to climate change. Next, the two chat about Klein's forthcoming book that compares the political actions of Canada during World War II to the contemporary climate emergency. They question what we can learn from the government's previous actions to both model successes and avoid repeated mistakes.
1: Welcome to Below the Radar. Really excited to have Seth Klein uh, with us today. Uh, Seth is, of course, a longtime uh, executive director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in BC. Uh, prior to uh, leaving that position to take on new projects and challenges, Seth has been doing a lot of uh, writing uh, lately on climate change. He of course, was working a lot of policy issues uh, over the years. Uh, welcome, Seth. I am. Uh, Seth, uh, so uh, we're in the middle of a federal election here in Canada right now, and um, there's obviously going to be a lot of discussion around climate change, global warming, policy uh, related to that in a in a big national uh, context. So I'm wondering if you can help us contextualize where some of these policy discussions are and, and where you think uh, some of the opportunities might be.
2: Specifically with regard to climate, uh, the climate emergency. Yeah. Well, uh, it's clearly a top of mind issue for the public. Uh, It keeps ranking as one of, if not the top uh, issues for people. It's the first time we've had a federal election in which the climate has figured so centrally. And all of the parties have their their plans or their so-called plans uh, in, in response to that. And we are seeing this really interesting grassroots effort to... To uh, find climate champions, so you've got the call for a, a Canadian Green New Deal. You've got the whole Our Time Youth Initiative that's trying to identify climate champions in different writings. Um, a, a whole effort to to get. Climate figuring centrally in the in the debates, uh, so it's it's going to be interesting. And last month, you may have seen I I actually commissioned my own national poll from Abacus on the climate emergency and and people's well, first of all, the degree to which people see it as as an emergency and their willingness or preparedness to consider truly bold actions and you know, my headline takeaway from that poll is that the, the, in many respects, the public's actually ahead of where our politics is at on this question.
1: In terms of the, the last uh, four years since the Trudeau government uh, has been in, there was, you know, a lot of uh, excitement about a, a change of government. Um, uh, but I think as pipeline politics, other environmental issues have uh, come forward, there's been a lot of critique of the government as well. So maybe we can begin with, you know, how, how do you Uh, characterize the Trudeau government's uh, approach to climate issues from a policy point of view?
2: Well, the term I use, and and I certainly think it's applicable to the Trudeau liberals, but not just them, I think it's actually true of the BCNDP as well, is uh, we live in the time of the new climate denialism. Uh, And so what distinguishes that from traditional climate denialism is whereas traditional climate denialism simply denied the reality of human-induced climate change, the new climate denialism as practiced by by governments and political leaders and the fossil fuel industry, it, it claims to accept the reality and, indeed, often the urgency of, of the climate crisis. Um, and yet it still practices a politics and a policy agenda that is not aligned with what the science says we have to do. And in particular, in the case of the federal liberals, um, you know, my former colleague at the CCPA, Mark Lee, calls it the all the above strategy. Effectively, it's saying to people, you don't have to choose. You don't have to make hard choices. We can be both bold climate leaders and continue to expand the extraction and export uh, of fossil fuels, whether it's, whether it's uh, oil sands or LNG. You can have it all. Um, you know, and that's a very attractive line. I think much of the public uh, buys that line. So why not? Uh, and that's the, that's the era that we're in now, but I also think it won't last.
1: Yeah, interestingly, we had uh, Amitav Ghosh uh, on Below the Radar uh, a few months back, and uh, he talked about the phenomenon of climate uh, skepticism, as uh, being almost uniquely situated or proliferating most profoundly in the Anglosphere, hmm. in a sense, uh, you know, uh, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, Australia, other, other places, and uh, that that current is sort of part of the culture of these developed uh, nations in, in a way. And uh, certainly when you uh, visit other places talking about the Trudeau government, um, uh, uh, my friend Matt and I were in the UK to talk about um, uh, climate change in a book. And uh, uh, people bring up Trudeau's name in the UK. It's, it's very, you know, he's very loved, as a progressive uh, reputation. And when you begin to talk about uh, environmental um, um, policies of the government, Uh, People don't seem uh, aware or make that uh, connection. So in some ways, there's been a kind of uh, branding around Trudeau as being progressive that has sort of resonated above the reality on the ground.
2: Absolutely. Well, uh, internationally, he's just such a stark contrast to Trump. And people just gravitate to that. But they're not looking at the context up close the way we are, those of us who reside in Canada. And in terms of your, your first comment, I think, you know, back to the poll I mentioned, one of the interesting things that emerges in the poll is for the longest time the climate threat was seen as it was it was abstract it was a threat in the future somewhere else and what emerges is increasingly Canadians see it as here and now um, and, and and weather events are a big part of that extreme weather events have 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 meant that people now get it and feel it and and we are reporting that in very high numbers there was a In the demographics I collected for the poll, I specifically asked about uh, whether people were first or second generation immigrants to Canada and what the country of origin was, if they were. And, you know, partly I wanted to test what I thought was an assumption that recent immigrants sort of care about climate less. And in fact, the opposite emerges uh, they tended to score higher than the overall national average in terms of their concern about climate. And in particular, in response to my question about whether or not people have personally or, or someone close to them experienced the impacts of climate change. And I think that's because in, in, in chunks of the world, uh, it is even more here and now, where, where people you know, with extended family who've, who've experienced something direct.
1: If you were to take a look at the parties that sort of people with an environmental bent are, are looking at voting for, let's say the Green Party, the NDP, perhaps the federal liberals, um, uh, w- how would you parse out the uh, environmental positions of the parties thus far that have been, been released?
2: Well, looking at the landscape before us uh, from uh, right extreme right to left, I guess you might say. So first of all, we have the People's Party, which is like right out of the Trump playbook Flat-out denial, traditional denial, among their many sins. Uh, then you have uh, the, the Conservative Party, which really has had to genuflex to some acknowledgement of climate, but it's, it's mischief, it's a non-plan. Uh, Mark Jackard's modelling of their plan is that emissions would actually continue to go up. So they have effectively taken themselves out of any serious consideration. Then you have the Liberals and the NDP and the Greens. The Liberals we've talked about, I think that's a contradictory approach. Um I would say both the Green and the NDP plans on climate are very good. Uh they both have a couple of weaknesses. They actually complement each other nicely. Uh you know the weaknesses of one tend to be a strength of the other, which is why in the grand scheme of things I think everyone's blue sky ideal outcome in this election is a minority outcome where for me, the ideal outcome would be the NDP and the Greens together holding the balance of power. And you can almost, you know, those of us in BC who have the experience of a, of a minority government now, you can imagine a negotiation for a federal confidence and supply agreement that pulls the best of everyone's policies and actually starts to look like a Canadian Green New Deal. And that could be extremely exciting. What's so hard for people, in, in part, well, in large part because of Trudeau's betrayal on electoral reform, is everybody is stuck in this awkward riding level strategic calculation where they're looking at, on the one hand, who has the best chance of ensuring the conservatives don't win if it's a riding that's in play that way, and who, which party or candidate is do I feel to be the best climate justice champion? And unfortunately, that may or may not be the same person in any given writing. And so everyone's going to have to make their best effort to figure that out.
1: Now, Seth, you've been um, working on researching and, and writing a book on uh, climate change related to mobilization and sort of looking back at previous. Um, eras like uh, uh, the lead-up to Second World War and, and following that in terms of the roles that states uh, played in coalescing resources around certain challenges and uh, emergencies. And there's been a lot of writers and theorists uh, thinking about uh, mobilizations as well. Christian Parenti has talked about the importance of re-engaging the, the state in these questions. Uh, locally in town, Jeff Mann's uh, book, Climate Leviathan, uh, raises those questions of the problems of, of sovereignty that emerge with the climate emergency.
2: And you and Matt have as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, and wondering how you've been sort of uh, uh, thinking uh, about this in the, in the Canadian context.
2: Well, so yes, I'm at home uh, writing a book on mobilizing Canada for the climate emergency uh, with the specific twist that I am, uh, it's structured around lessons from World War II, the last time we mobilized across society in the face of an existential threat. Uh, When I set out on this uh, book project, I was really just wanting to focus on the gap between what the science says we have to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain and how do you close the gap. i had always planned on having a chapter about World War II, specifically about how we quickly retooled the economy in World War II, which I have long felt to be this uh, rather hopeful example that tells us we've actually done that before. But the more I dug into that, the more I actually decided, and ultimately did decide, to structure the whole book around lessons from World War II. Uh, How was public opinion marshaled in World War II? What does that offer for today? How did we retool the economy then? What could that look like today? How did we pay for it then? What could that look like today? What did we do for returning soldiers then? Are there lessons for just transition for energy workers today? Um, what was the role of youth then and now? Indigenous people then and now? And what are the cautionary tales, which is what you're getting at with, with your book and, and Jeff's book? What were the things that happened in World War II that caused us shame? Uh, whether it's the internment or the, the uh, infringements of civil liberties, and, and in particular, our response to refugees, and the things that we don't want to replicate as we face down... This new emergency, but I have to say, you know, my I cut my teeth as a teenage activist in the peace movement in the eighties. I'm a, I am the last guy you ever would have thought would be writing a book about war um, and delving into all of this World War II history. But I have to tell you, I have found it fascinating, and the more I get into it, the more I see these parallels. Like even going back to the to, to the election, I take some comfort in the fact. That right until the 11th hour, the Mackenzie King government really didn't want to do this, just like our government. They they desperately resisted wanting to be drawn into another European war. And they denied all of these obvious threats, just like people deny the threats today. They wouldn't support the volunteers who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War, even a Canadian brigade named after Mackenzie King's own grandfather. They didn't support sanctions at the League of Nations against Italy when, when, it, when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Mackenzie King himself had met with Hitler and viewed him as no serious threat were his words. So right up until the last minute, all this reticence to, to do what had to be done. And then even once, so, the, you know, then, then in, in, in September of 39, the Nazis invade Poland, two days later, England declares war, a week later, Canada declares war, and then... Nothing really happened. So historians actually refer to the next nine months or so as the phony war. That's the term they use. Because we had declared war, but there wasn't actual fighting, really. Um, and to me, this is, this is the moment we're in now. You have the federal liberal government declaring climate emergency, approving a pipeline the next day. The, the motion, the emergency motion was symbolic, but it didn't mean anything yet. So we are in our phony war. But just like the phony war ended then, it's going to end now too. We just don't know exactly when and how.
1: Yeah, and I think that one of the the real challenges around um, the acceleration of global warming is that for some people, they feel the emergency right now, that the crisis is actually here and now already and for some people, this is at some point in the in the future, and it, it lands down differently for people depending on on where they are. If you're in the Amazon right now, or if you're in uh, parts of Africa where it's uh, exacerbating sectarian tensions, which are you know having a, a direct impact on war and and these types of pieces. Certainly, the wildfires are very uh, good examples um, here, but. Uh, There's people like Tim Flannery who've uh, come into town and, you know, talks about, you know, when the beginning of the First World War started in 1914, if you were able to project out 35 or 36 years to the end of 1950, you know, who could have foreseen uh, that uh, China would have gone through a, a civil war and a communist regime in place, or that the Uh, Soviet Union was going to be in the context that they were going to be in, or the partition of India and Pakistan, like a a massive, massive changes can happen within a a generation. And uh, certainly, when you look at uh, military war planning, which was a big part of Second World War, when you look at the public documents of the militaries, there isn't a military in the world that doesn't Uh, believe in climate change or isn't planning around it, the public documents of the US military, British military, Canadian, and including naval bases and those types of things that are going to be affected by sea level rise, but also uh, they're planning for or uh, the expectation of civil disorder and these types of things. And so um, with um, uh, the challenges that uh, the climate emergency uh, brings forward, how do we uh, think through the possibilities of social dis- disturbance and the kind of the bigger divides that are likely to come? Of course, people put forward uh, things, various formations of the Green New Deal, uh, but what are the kind of policy pieces that hold those things together? It gets branded as the Green New Deal, but how it gets talked about in the US or Canada or somewhere else is very different.
2: So first of all, back to your first point, I, the good news is I think increasingly Canadians do see it as an emergency and it is an emergency. So the poll uh, that I released last month found that 40% of Canadians believe climate change is an emergency and another, uh, 22% think, uh, it likely will be in the next few years. So you've basically got 62% of the public who are, who are rightly there and seeing it uh, as an emergency, um, your point about that sort of security threat as understood by the military is an interesting one, too, that I've been playing with. I actually think in this election, there's a message to the small C conservative voter out there that says, you know, for all of you people who pride yourself on caring about the protection of your children and grandchildren uh, who, who care about national security, uh, you know, that these are the values on which you pride yourself these conservative man-baby leaders today, they don't deserve you. And they're not the same kind of conservative leaders we had in World War II. The conservative leaders we had in World War II in the face of an existential threat that looked almost insurmountable much of the time rallied us and said, we can do this. Not like these guys today who have temper tantrums and say, don't make me do it. Um, you know, for the small C conservative voter, you're, you're better than them. In terms of the Green New Deal piece of it, uh, you know, this is the collective project that's underway uh, in every country. And it's and not just in the U.S. I mean, the, the idea, the core principles of it have caught on fire in Spain and in the U.K. and, of course, here. And that's a process of defining what the Canadian version of that looks like. But it, the excitement about it, I think, operates on a few levels. One is just the ambition of it, right? The, the original deal was this massive infrastructure and public spending project to just drive the economy out of depression and provide hundreds of thousands uh, of jobs. Um, And that is welcome because I think part of what's restricted us on the climate front is that we're locked in neoliberal thinking about what governments can and can't actually do. And we need to be liberated from that. But the other piece of it is that it, it turns the whole jobs versus environment dichotomy on its head. And it actually seizes the initiative to say not only is this a bold plan to see us meet the IPCC targets on greenhouse gas reductions, but it's actually going to employ hundreds of thousands of people in in an exciting jobs plan. And then it's linked, and it's about linking the climate emergency with the other core challenges of our time around inequality and that basic principle of leaving no one behind, and then wetting it additionally to... What does a modern Green New Deal look like that honors and respects Indigenous rights and title and that takes a, a different approach to refugees and migration than we did the last time this came up?
1: It's interesting that you did start out doing work in the the peace movement, because I think that the nuclear question very much in the 20th century was viewed as one of the existential human questions in the way that the climate emergency is right now in terms of the capacity of the human species to exist. So there is a, a kind of a philosophical It, it was connection. the
2: existential threat of my childhood. And, uh, and it was an existential threat. It had to get uh, dealt with. This one's different, though, I would say. Um, you know, when I was a kid in the peace movement, the existential threat was sort of, will this happen or won't it happen? The climate change one is happening, just a question of degrees.
1: And I think there's a durational aspect to it because I think that the possibility of nuclear war as it was being presented in the 60s, 70s and the 80s was something that would be immediate and escalated and, and that would be that, whereas the climate um, uh, emergency plays out over a different time frame. Mm-hmm. And so our relationship to it as a threat is very different.
2: But but also, I want to come back to your earlier point, which is that, you know, there is this worry, and you and Matt articulate it in your book and and Jeff and his, that that wartime scale emergency framework is, is threatening to civil liberties and uh, or in terms of how we react. Now, you're right, of course, to raise... The, the, the flag about a concern like that, because that is always a possibility. And, you know, Naomi makes the point in, in her new book that there's a new wave of sort of right-wing climate emergency uh, stuff that is barbaric and, and the response to which is to, you know, build walls and pull up the drawbridge and, and everyone looks after their own. It's not climate denial. It's seeing the climate, but reacting in a very in-egalitarian way. The path we will take once we truly uh, recognize the climate emergency could go either way. So so all of these things are right to be flagged. They're not a reason not to see it as an emergency. It is an emergency. Mm -hmm. We just have to go into it eyes wide open about the possible ways in which this unfolds and committed to have it unfold in the best way possible. The the uh, I've been drawing a little bit in my writing on Rebecca Solnit has the who you guys brought to us a few not that long ago. Uh, she has this book called um, "A Paradise Built in Hell," in which she explores geographically and over time all of these disasters—natural, you know, war, hurricanes, earthquakes and how communities respond. And of course, sometimes we it brings out our worst selves and, and, and people are awful. But what she more often finds is these examples of how we respond magnificently and how it brings out our best selves. And that is ultimately the core leadership challenge, right? In the face of an undeniable emergency, the best kind of leadership is to bring out our best selves.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges of thinking through this is sort of uh, what is done in the name of crisis, or what happens in the crisis, and you know what comes up for me is you know uh, you know going to Fort McMurray uh, after the fire happened. There was uh, all sorts of wonderful stories about how people treated each other and they evacuated ninety thousand people. People let each other in. They had water for each other. It's like any kind mm-hmm. of good community story. You know? But then two or three years later, you're back in Fort McMurray and the oil sands are still going. There's expansion being talked about in a way. And I think one of the sort of uh, challenges of thinking through this, and I think Naomi Klein did it very well in in the shock doctrine, which is that when you do have these emergencies, like in New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina, that when the state does intervene, because it is overlaid with its sort of contemporary neoliberal condition, um, how it comes in and what it does does matter. And I think obviously the way that you're talking about it is much more uh, uh, um, uh, the New Deal in the 30s or uh, in terms of the positive aspects of the way the state intervened during a crisis. But how do we parse those things out? But also the mobilizing of, of narratives can have both of those uh, sides articulated as well, the both the very, very positive side, but also uh, the sides that directs um, hate or blames uh, 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 towards particular communities that are vulnerable. Mm.
2: Well, and Naomi's point is also, you know, the more we are aware of how these unfold and are taken advantage of awfully in the past, the more shock resistant we are to uh, dealing with it the next time. And we do learn from these examples. So, you know, I've given the example, part of what I'm trying to say in the book is thinking about this as a war-like emergency is a jolt to the status quo. It encourages just a shift in our thinking about how we do this. Uh, Mostly what we've seen in Canada so far in, in the form of climate policy is policy that's like encouraging people to do this, incentivizing people with a rebate or a subsidy here and so on. And carbon pricing is an example of that. But the thing is, in in an emergency, we don't make acting voluntary. Um, And the example I give is, you know, if if, if a community in the interior is facing a forest fire, we don't say to people, we encourage you to leave. We tell people it's time to go. Now, that said, we have to do that carefully. And so when, when you think about the forest fires that raged across BC's interior, both in 2017 and then again in 2018. There was an interesting transition and learning that happened, right? The first summer, the government declared a state of emergency, ordered the Chilcotin out of their communities, basically told them to buzz off. Uh, They weren't going to be ordered out of their own lands. In the the in-between year there were negotiations about how this could unfold differently and a new protocol was established. So that in 2018, it unfolded very differently and the Chilco team themselves decided when to declare emergency and how their communities uh, would respond. So I think this is how we learn. And we, we always learn and improve, I think. Like even, you know, some terrible things happened in World War II under the Wartime Measures Act, including the mayor of Montreal was jailed for four years for speaking out against the war in conscription. The War Measures Act was invoked again by Trudeau Sr. during the FLQ crisis. But because of that experience, we actually got the Federal Emergencies Act, which was designed to replace the War Measures Act and try to avoid the kind of worst examples of infringements of civil liberties that had characterized that.
1: Seth, where are you taking the book now in terms of where you've um, gotten to in the writing so far?
2: Um, well, I'm aiming to finish a, a manuscript by December, so you know, it'll be out later next year. That's why with interviews like this, I'm, I'm keen to share some stuff uh, while it's relevant to the federal election. Um, and I think there's, there's lots to share. Yeah, And, and,
1: and people have been writing uh, about uh, similar types of uh, mobilization in other countries related to those sort of uh, wartime uh, metaphors. But who have you been reading that's been uh, influencing your work?
2: The, you know, it's interesting. There's a number of articles, both popular and, and academic, that have been written comparing uh, the climate emergency and, and lessons from World War II. Um, no one's done it for Canada. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a full book. Uh, you know, there was one short journal article uh, some years ago by a, a prof from Memorial. Um and like I say, I think the more you delve into this, the more you find interesting examples. And, and you end up digging stuff out from our own history. Um, so, you know, there's lots that's been written, for example, about what happened with the shipbuilding industry in British Columbia during the war. And it's an incredible story that, again, I think signals to us what's possible once we actually treat this as an emergency. And, and just to elaborate on that. Um, you know, w- way back in the day, British Columbia used to have a shipbuilding industry. It all went dormant in the depression. There were a couple shipyards in North Van doing repairs, that was it. And then we declared war. And in the next 4 years, just in British Columbia, so mostly in Vancouver, a little bit in Prince Rupert, a little bit in Victoria, the province built over 300 ships. 250 of them were large, what, what were called Liberty ships, these 10,000-ton these merchant marine cargo ships. Like, we had to import some naval architects from the States and Britain. Everyone else it had to be cr- created from scratch, locally hired and trained, a third of them women. The, the union local of the Vancouver shipbuilders went from effectively nothing to the, lar- the single largest union local in the country. That's, it was 30,000 people. But, you know, that to me boggles my mind in terms of the scope and speed of what we can do. And even when you think about mobilization, like, you know, when when people had to en- enlist in World War II, it got off to a slow start, as I was saying earlier. But by war's end, over a million Canadian men and women had enlisted out of a total population then of only 11 and a half million. So basically one in 11. Like, that's incredible uh, as a signal of a population across class and, and gender and race that decided something had to be done collectively.
1: Interesting. The first time someone ever evoked the kind of uh, metaphor that you're talking about uh, was I had a chance to interview Ralph Keeling, uh, who's the son of Charles David Keeling. Uh, who's a scientist at Scripps? Uh, and uh, he sort of measures uh, CO2 levels uh, in Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, and he ta- and I asked him a more political question about what needed to be done. And he said, you know, he's a scientist. He doesn't get, get into the policy questions, uh, but that we needed something, the scale of the Marshall Plan or something like this in order to happen. And this was back in 2005 or six or something like that. And to be talking about things in that way during the Bush administration was maybe a little bit too radical for the time.
2: But there's something incredibly hopeful about it, eh? That... Uh of what becomes possible once we start thinking uh, that way.
1: Seth, since you've been uh, away from the CCPA, I mean, you were in that role from what, 1997? 22 years. 22 years. That's amazing. And I think about uh, building up an institution and being uh, involved in policy questions ra- ranging from land use to housing to income inequality. And um, uh, do you have any sort of thoughts and reflections from that that period of your your life, because that was you were kind of one of the, the the pillars of the progressive left in the province of BC. I mean, you still oh, are. Right, but yeah, I was uh, about to say, <laughs> what am I now? Um, uh,
2: well, uh, it hasn't been that long since I left. But, you know, first of all, it's just great to watch them now from outside because they're continuing to kick ass and produce amazing stuff. Um, I mean, I feel really proud of the time I spent at the CCPA, uh, mostly for the people we trained um, and, and the institutions that we helped to found. The BC Poverty Reduction Coalition was oh, born right. at this our, who are now yeah. in this building, but they were born at our board table and the Living Wage for Families campaign, likewise, um, uh, uh, and the Climate Justice Project. You know, when when we started the Climate Justice Project 12, 13 years ago, just to give you a sense of how things change, we actually wondered whether anyone would understand what we meant by the term uh, because it had no currency at the time so you know these are all signs of things uh, that change
1: yeah so you're involved with uh, the SFU urban studies uh, program can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there
2: well uh, I'm not, not doing much they they very kindly made me an adjunct uh, professor early this year after I left CCPA um, and have been terrific because they've a I've, I've been able to uh, organize a bunch of my book stuff through there, including some grants that have supported the work and, and the polling work that I did and so on. That was all done through there. And hiring one of their excellent students to be my, my research assistant. But mostly I've been reticent to jump too much into things because I'm hiding away writing the book. Uh, so I'm not doing any teaching uh, or anything like that. When should
1: our uh, listeners expect the book to be uh, out?
2: Well, if, uh, in the fall of 2020.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Seth.
0: Thanks again to Seth Klein for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. As always, many thanks to our team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Rachel Wong, and Ferela Pinoyos. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.